Hey, thank you for coming out in the midst of the blizzard that is outside right now. At least for some guys it is, so they decided to slack off and stay home. So make sure that you text them and take notice of who's not here. You guys are the highly committed participants rather than the passive spectators. So thank you for being here, brothers. Open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We're in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And I got a chance to listen to Pastor Kellen's message from last week, and what a blessing that was to hear him minister God's word from the previous text, which was a tough one, wasn't it? James two fourteen through 26. So I'm thankful for him spending time in God's word um, addressing you men last week. I've titled this message, A Respectable Sin. I've mentioned before that I have live heroes in the faith that I love to listen to and to read some of their works. And then I have some dead heroes in the faith. And one of those is Jerry Bridges, who passed away just a few years ago. Bridges wrote a book, um, many books that I, I would commend to you, but one of the books that he wrote was, a, it was titled Respectable Sins. How many of you have come across that book or read it? Yeah, there's a few of you. And in that book, Respectable Sins, he highlights subtle sins amongst Christians that we often tend to overlook, that we tend to not pay much attention to. They are sins that fly under the radar in Christian churches. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a sin, a respectable sin that is more prevalent in Christian churches than that of the sinful use of the tongue. And that of Christians in churches who use their mouths, their words in a hurtful unhelpful and destructive manner. And so tonight we're going to talk about this and, and learn about this from James chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. James is really going to take us to task on this respectable sin. And if you remember, he's been talking to us about what it means to be all in in the Christian life, what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to God from the heart. He's been talking to us from in this whole letter about what it means to cultivate an inner life which matches our profession, which matches what we claim to believe in. He's been talking to us about what it means to cultivate a life of inner wholeness or of inner integrity. Well, this life of integrity, amongst other things, must also be evident in the way that we speak, in the way that we use our words, that they should be Christ-like words, Christ-like speech, not characterized by fleshly speech. Isn't it true that while speech is one of the greatest gifts to man as believers, it's one of those um, things that we must be on guard more than any other um, aspect of our lives, that our speech, our words should be used for good, brothers, and not for evil, um, either toward God or toward other people, other human beings. And so James turns up the heat here by giving us a series of, of warnings and uh, these become really a deterrent for us to using our words in a hurtful, harmful way towards others. And he begins, if you're taking notes, by warning us in this text that our words will one day be judged. Write that down. We must be warned that our words will one day be judged. This is in verses 1 through 2. And I think we often forget about this in the Christian life, that one day future you and I are going to be held accountable as believers for how we speak. Obviously not salvifically. We know this from Romans chapter 8 verse 1, which says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that 
future judgment at the bema seat of Christ is not going to be salvific for us as believers, right? We are saved and justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also true that we will be judged as believers for how fruitful we've been in the Christian life. And James reminds us as professing believers about this. And uh, he begins with those who are to be an example to others of speaking words that are righteous words, that are right kinds of words. Look at verse 1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James reminds us off the bat that though all will be judged, teachers will be judged with greater strictness, he says. All will be judged but uh, as believers, but teachers in particular, he says, are at the top of the list of those who will be held accountable for how they speak. In other words, you who instruct others formally, who set yourselves as examples, as teachers of the word of God, need to remember that one day you will be held accountable for what you say, what you teach. So be careful, right? And obviously the, the caution for any of us who desire to be teaching is not to run so hastily to instruct other people. There are always going to be people in the church who want to teach, who want to impart truth. And that certainly can be a good thing. It is a noble task and a noble work to desire to, to teach, especially if you aspire to the office of, a, of an elder, right? Especially if you're gifted uh, to be a teacher. That's a noble thing. But James says, not many of you should desire that. You better count the cost. Why? Because one day teachers will stand before Christ and answer to him for how they have instructed other people in the church. It's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, and listen to this, rightly handling the word of truth. The sense there is cutting it straight. In other words, make sure, Timothy, that you are being accurate, that you are being precise in terms of the way you divide the word of truth to God's people. This is why I always have warned uh, younger men and younger aspiring pastors about this, that even though they, it's, teaching is a joy and it's a privilege to desire to do that, especially if they feel called and they've been affirmed to do that in the context of the church, it's a great privilege, but with the great privilege and blessing of teaching comes the sober responsibility and accountability that one day we will stand as teachers before God and answer for, for the doctrine that we have imparted, whether it was accurate, accurate and precise. And so we need to be people who are mindful of the reality that imparting truth comes with a great sobering responsibility and accountability. Now, what about for the rest of us? I want you to notice that James does not limit this caution here just to teachers. Notice how James expands this caution beyond teachers. He says in verse 2, if you look there, for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. It's not just teachers who can fall short, but all fall short. And notice how humble James is in this statement. He includes himself as part of this, doesn't he? He says, we all stumble. We all have moral lapses. We all trip, trip over in the Christian life. We fall short. Nobody is perfect with regard to how they speak, with regards to what they say, what comes out of our mouths. In fact, your ability to control your tongue really is, as we're going to see later on, a litmus test of your spiritual maturity. 
of just how spiritually um, uh, solid and stable you really are. In the middle of verse 2, notice what he says. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, meaning that it's possible to actually practice self-control, that it's possible for you to be mature in this area. He says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Perfect here doesn't mean, obviously, literal perfection or sinlessness, but he's talking about spiritual maturity in the Christian life. He's saying that, that the Christian who is able to consistently practice self-control as a way of life is spiritually strong, is spiritually stable, is spiritually mature. And we all know Christians like that, don't we? Even Christians, perhaps, that you've come across as you've walked the journey of the Christian life, who are seasoned people, who are seasoned and who use caution in terms of the way that they use their mouths. I met a handful of men that I can think of as I studied this who listen so well, who think before they speak, who are very, important, who are very careful in the choice of their words. They are men of few words because they want to be utterly careful. They give the benefit of the doubt before jumping to conclusions and tearing others down. We can all learn from individuals like that, right? That's why it's important for us to surround ourselves with mature older men in our lives who actually model this for us right here. And so don't miss this, brothers, that God is giving us here a, a warning, a caution, that we should practice self-control for one day. We're going to have to answer to God for what comes out of our mouth. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37? He said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Obviously, for us as believers, right, we will not be condemned in the sense of salvifically, but we will be rewarded, or whatever that looks like, we will suffer a sense of shame for the way that we have spoken if, the, if we made it a habit of speaking corruptly and wickedly. Sobering reminder there from Jesus that we will answer not only uh, for the quantity of our words, but more so for the quality of our words. For whether we have spoken in a Christ-like manner as a way of life rather than in a fleshly manner. Again, it is certainly true that believers will not be judged salvifically, right? Romans chapter 8 verses 35 and following says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We understand that. That should certainly bring us comfort. But even so, with the cautions of Scripture, beyond just teachers, every believer will be held accountable for the impact that their lives had on others, for our spiritual fruitfulness, brothers, and how we have stewarded the talents and the resources that God has given to us. Write these passages down. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's Paul speaking as a believer, instructing professing believers, right? That we will stand before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, he says, we make it our aim to please him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then write down 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, and maybe read those later on, which also speaks of a, of a future time when the sincere quality of our service to God in our good works will be tested by God. And so these passages warn us that we're going to give an account for everything, and that includes what comes from our lips. And so think about this. This caution requires us to work on our heart contemplations, how we reflect and think about other people in our hearts, brothers. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? We speak out of that which fills the heart. This means that if you're going to address the things that come out of your mouth, you need to address your heart before the Lord so that you might guard your mouth. You need to be thinking about others rightly. I love in Philippians chapter 1 how Paul bursts forth in the thanksgiving and, and prayer for the Philippian believers. He says, whenever I think about you, I'm mindful of a decade before, in that, from the time that he was writing there in Philippians, I'm mindful of, of, of the beginning stages, essentially, of their faith, of our partnership in the gospel. How you think about people will dictate how you speak about people, how you will pray for people, how you will show gratitude for people, you see. And so if we're going to address this issue and nip it in the bud, so to speak, then we have to address what's in our hearts and how we think and contemplate and reflect about other people, beginning with our spouses and our kids and our grandkids and our brothers and sisters in Christ and even the world, if we're going to speak words that are healthy words. And so first, be warned that your words will be judged. You, have, you will be accountable for the, for the things that you say. Secondly, secondly, be warned that your words can have great influence. Your words can have great influence. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. This is in verses 3 through verse 5, the beginning of verse 5. And here James uses two illustrations that are somewhat neutral to remind us of just how influential, brothers, words can, can be. How influential is the tongue? Here's illustration number one. Consider the horse and the bit. Consider the horse and the bit. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well, he says. We've seen this example before, right? That though it, the bit is such a small device, it exerts great influence upon that powerful horse. I mean, just consider the, the Shire Stallion. The Shire Stallion is a horse six to seven feet high for the most part, strong enough to carry a lot of weight and the heaviest of riders and still runs at high speeds. Powerful workhorse, it's referred to as. A workhorse. He's a symbol of power and endurance. And yet, think about this, he's controlled by a very small bit made, a, made up of, a, of metal or synthetic material inside of that horse's mouth. He's controlled with something relative uh, relative to the size of the horse, it's so tiny and small. But they're able to direct this powerful animal. And so that bit is an indispensable tool for controlling the horse. They can't control the horse without this particular device. And so James's point is, in like manner, the tongue, though relatively small, has the power to influence the rest of our body, to influence the trajectory of our lives. That's his point. 
How influential is the tongue? Illustration number two, consider the, the ship and the rudder in verse four. Look at verse four. Look at the ships also, he says. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, these ships, they are guided by a very small rudder. And he uses his words intentionally there. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also, verse 5, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts, excuse me, it boasts of great things. In those days, large ships would carry 200 passengers or more, and tons of merchandise or, or product for trading and all of that. These ships were powerful vessels, carried along by, by powerful winds. But James's point is that as large and as powerful as these ships were, they were relatively a small part of the ship which directed this massive vessel, these, this rudder, this flat piece of wood, metal, or plastic hinged vertically near the stern of a boat or, or ship and used for steering. He says, compared to the rest of the ship, this rudder was very small. Notice the, the careful use of the grammar there in verse 4, Right? He says, very, it's a very small rudder that the ship is guided by. Those are superlatives that are used deliberately to highlight the, the huge contrast. And James's point here is, and his application is based on these two illustrations. He says in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. In other words, just in the same way that the bit controls a powerful horse, and a very small rudder guides the large ship, so also the tongue has great influence. It boasts of great things, notice. I love the imagery there. The tongue is like a little tiny Napoleon amongst our members, right? Powerfully exerting influence, though, though small. And so note, with these two illustrations, somewhat neutral, James is simply saying this, our words, brothers, have impact. Our words um, direct. Our words have the, the power to set the trajectory of our lives and that of other people if they believe wrongful words from us. They are influential. I mean, just consider some of the great speeches in history. Some of those powerful speeches that influence movements and move people, right, to, toward particular causes. Think of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Spoken in 1863 at the site of one of Civil War's critical battles, right? And there Lincoln exhorted his audience to pay tribute to these fallen soldiers and dedicated a cemetery to them as a memorial of the sacrifice that those men had made. Powerful speech. Think of Winston Churchill's speech, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, spoken in 1940. It was Churchill's first speech as Britain's prime minister. It was a powerful war cry against Nazi Germany. Think about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, spoken from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the march in, in Washington, where King gave his vision of American racial harmony in historic fashion. Think about the impact of those speeches full of words that were influential, powerful words spoken for noble causes. Man, it's the same in our lives. It's the same for us. And it's when we saturate our minds and hearts with God's Word, with the Scripture, that what will flow from our lips, brothers, is what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 describes as what is good for building up, as fits the occasion, and it may give grace to those who hear. Our words have 
a powerful, positive influence upon others when we fill and saturate our hearts with God's Word, right? We've been there before where we've had victory in that particular area. Our words can have a positive influence upon others when not only do we speak the truth, yes, but also, listen, when we do it with the, for the right purpose, as Ephesians 4.29 says, for the good and building up of others, when we do it in the right moment as fits the occasion, right? It's not just the what of what we say, but the, the when we say the truth, we speak the truth, and with the right heart, that it may give grace to those who, who hear, that when we speak, we have the motive of imparting a blessing and, and favor upon others in what we speak. May God give us grace to be able to do that. And so words are, are powerful. They can have great influence for the good. However, however, conversely, they can also be very damaging. And so thirdly, be warned, third, that your words can be damaging. Your words can be damaging. That's in verse 5b through verse 8. And I want you to notice this. James has used two somewhat neutral illustrations, but now he uses a third illustration that has very negative connotations, and it's the one of a fire. Fire. Fire, which is a, a good thing, isn't it? It can be used for wonderful things, profitable things, like, like warming the human body, like heating a baby's milk or formula, like cooking some delicious barbecue, right? Or carne asada, exquisite meat. There are some great, useful, wonderful causes that fire um, meets or is used for. On the other hand, left unchecked and unharnessed, fire is quite destructive, quite hurtful, and quite damaging, isn't it? Look at verse 5, the middle of the verse. How great, he says, a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. He likens the, 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 the tongue here to a small fire that is out of control, that is reckless, causing great harm upon this vast forest, destroying homes and, and people's livelihood. We've seen those images, haven't we, in Southern California during heat waves and all of that, where people's homes are burned and their livelihood is burned down and they're sitting there and they're being interviewed, Right? And they are just crying and can't believe that this has happened. That's what James is saying here. In the same way, the tongue can, can cause a lot of damage, a lot of hurt. And the tongue is a fire, he says in verse 6. A world of unrighteousness. Note the hyperbolic language that, that James uses intentionally and for emphasis, right? A reckless tongue causes not just a little damage here, and there of, of unrighteousness, but a world of it, a world of unrighteousness. He's being intentional there, using hyperbolic, purposeful uh, language so that we might get the point that this is destructive. He goes on, the tongue is set among our members, and he's speaking there of our, of our physical bodies by our members, and he clarifies what he means when he says, staining the, the whole body, again, polluting our physical bodies, He's saying, what flows from our lips has the potential to pollute every aspect of us. And he's not done describing the damage. Look at verse 6. The tongue is setting on fire the entire course of life. You know what this refers to? This refers to the negative social impact that our tongues, used wrongly, can have upon people in a damaging kind of way. 
Our words, brothers, you sinfully impact our relationships, impact our communities, impact our nation in a very real way. You name it. It's all-encompassing. Everywhere you look in our society, there is, there is fire in the sense of damage and corruption caused by destructive, harmful, hurtful words. Just turn on the TV, right, to see this and watch the vain words by politicians and talk show hosts, right, damaging people's lives. Listen to the hateful, murderous words spoken by people who, who didn't get their way. And then they take matters into their own hands. Listen to the testimonies of people that took their own life because somebody else said something hurtful and hateful about them or toward them or or spread gossip or slanderous speech about them. Or people taking the life of another person who said something mean-spirited to them. All over our society we see the damage, don't we? The hurt and the results of sinful words That they impact marriages, parenting, politics, education, the entire course of life. That's what James means. Those social relationships. And the question is, what what fuels such damage by means of words? What fuels this? Obviously, they flow from our own sinful hearts, right? We have nobody else to blame but ourselves when we sin in this way. James made the point back in chapter 1. That we should not be blaming anybody else for our own sin. We need to look within. But note also what James says concerning the source of such damage. He says it's set on fire by what? Hell. By Gehenna itself, he says. There's no neutral, he says, with regards to these destructive, damaging words. That sinful use of the tongue, he says, is not neutral. It's evil from a terrifying place. From hell itself, he says. Far too often an uncontrolled tongue is used as a powerful tool, brothers, from Satan himself to bring misery and pain, right? Think of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler who gave many speeches to propel his own people to murder Jews and murder other people during World War II. How did he do it? Through the damaging satanic use of words. Through persuasive tactics. And so James is telling us how damaging the tongue can be, and it's, and it's a, a, a battle to control, he says. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He's using, obviously, absolutes here. He's speaking, he's saying that ultimately we won't be able to perfect the right use of our tongues. He's already said that we all stumble, right? It's all, it'll always be a challenge to perfect the art of self-control in this, in this life. This we cannot do in this life. That's his point. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Notice the descriptive words. It's talking about the damage that the tongue, sinful use of the tongue can actually cause. Now, what are some ways, if we want to put some flesh to this, what are some ways, brothers, that we may be damaging others in the use of our words? What does this look like? Let me give you some categories, okay? First of all, we may be damaging others out in the world, the non-believing world. You say, but they're damaging us. Yeah, but we also do it toward them. Let me tell you how. Maybe as you watch the world being the world, 
Instead of speaking the truth in love and bringing God's gospel to bear upon people, allowing the gospel of truth to be the offense, to be what convicts people, what do we do many times as Christians? We do this subtly or even intentionally, actively. We match fire with fire by using abusive speech, fleshly speech, condescending speech, driven by sinful anger in our hearts, bitterness, resentment because of everything that we see around us. Instead of taking our concerns to God in prayer and pleading with our Heavenly Father for sinners to come to repentance, including 1 Timothy chapter 2, our politicians on every level of government, that we need to be praying for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. What do we do? We become bitter, and we make it a habit, subtly or actively, of lashing out. And maybe somebody in here raises the flag and says, well, it's terrible out there. It is, but that gives you no excuse or justification to continue to do that. And there's no way that you can slice and dice out of this thing. You cannot weasel out of this. It's sinful and it's wrong. What we see in our society may explain or exacerbate how we feel about things. Absolutely. But it doesn't justify us living in a state of utter bitterness and sinful resentment and then lashing out at the world around us, right? In a sort of pessimistic kind of a way. Where instead of being optimistic in the gospel, we're always negative, always combative. These people out there. Brothers, listen to me. If we're going to be any good in this world, we are on mission for the sake of the gospel. Amen? We're here because of the Great Commission. And it's not going to be by being combative and being pessimistic. Nobody's going to want to hear you if that's what you're doing. Speak the truth in love. Be forthright with the truth. But do it in gentleness. Remember that you too were one day at one point in the same place. And so grace doesn't excuse or diminish or downplay sin or sweep it under the rug in the lives of non-believers. But grace informs and shapes how we speak the truth. Amen? In love. With gentleness. So we may be damaging others out in the world in the way that we use our speech. Secondly, we may be damaging others in our home life. Write that down in our home life. Our dear wife or kids become the recipients of our damaging words. Maybe we have the habit of using verbally abusive words, and somehow we justify it. Because, hey, as a father, I gave a command and my child is not listening. So instead of you lovingly rendering consequences, what do you do? Abusive words, hateful words demeaning words, condescending words like a dictator or an intimidator or a manipulator, right? We can function that way, brothers, toward our our family rather than as gentle spiritual shepherds, like the chief shepherd shepherds us. Listen, to some extent or another, we can all sin in this area, brothers, using berating words which discourage which deflate and cause our wives and kids to lose heart or to become embittered toward you. And especially if you have little ones, listen, maybe right now they're not going to articulate to you the fact that you're doing that and how you make them feel, but one day when they get bigger, I can promise you, mark my words, you keep going down that route, they're going to begin to articulate for you how you made them feel. Or they will tell other people. I've counseled young people that way. 
who maybe when they were little, they felt a certain way. They never said anything to their father or their mother. But eventually, when they get older, they begin to articulate their perception of how you treated them. Let the offense be, brother, because you bring in the gospel to bear upon them, but doing it in love. These can come with a loud tone or a loud voice or volume, but they can also come in a silent tone, right? Some of us are more passive-aggressive. Either way, those are damaging words, so be careful. And repent if that's where you're at. Confess that to the Lord and go home tonight and ask for forgiveness because one of the greatest things that you can do as a father is sit that little one down or that teen down or that young uh, um, son or daughter and say, hey, listen to me. I ask for your forgiveness because I need the gospel just as much as you do and I have failed you in this area. Boy, that'd be a powerful testimony, wouldn't it? Truth be told, brothers, I've had to do that years ago. On a number of occasions, little whoever, please forgive. You know, when daddy lost his cool there, that was wrong and sinful. Please forgive me, son. Even though you disobeyed, it didn't justify me responding the way that I did. And I want you to know, this is why I need the gospel too. This is why I need Jesus. And this is why you need Jesus. Because none of us are perfect and we blow it and we hurt God and we hurt other people just like I just hurt you. What a powerful testimony that becomes for our kids, brothers. We can also do damage in the church. Write that down. In the church towards other brothers and sisters in Christ. We do this by using words that are combative in the context of the church. Contrarian. Argumentative. Negative. Always grumbling and complaining. We do this by speaking evil of others. By using slanderous words. What, what, what slander? Where your aim is to speak negatively about someone so as to tear them down, so as to cut them down to size. And that is your intention. And you falsely accuse them. Much too often the church becomes a war zone rather than a spiritual family. And that comes back to the way that we berate one another in the church. Or we're passive aggressive in the way that we speak condescendingly to one another or about one another. But listen to Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, which is pride, a lying tongue, deception, and hands that shed innocent blood, that's hateful, murderous, a hateful, murderous spirit, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord amongst brothers. See that? And to one extent or another, you can make the case that most of those sins that the Lord hates are interconnected and related to how we use our words. Beginning with how we're thinking about that other person in our hearts first, and eventually we're led when the opportunity comes to articulate to that person or to others how we feel about them. And those sins obviously are first and foremost an offense to God. God hates them, he says, because God cares about how we relate to others. All of those sins were against other people, right? And he says, God hates those things. So don't fool yourself into thinking, well, I have a great relationship with the Lord vertically, but on the horizontal level, I love speaking ill about other people, or I'm known for having a, a, a mouth problem, but my relationship with the Lord is great. Don't be foolish, brother. 
That's inconsistent with what James is saying here, with the Word of God. And so we must be careful with causing strife or division, even in the context of the church, or being known for stirring the pot. Memorize Proverbs 16.27. If you're having an issue with this, or if, even if you're not, Proverbs 16.27, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Or Proverbs 26, verse 21. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Man, I don't want to be that man, brother. I know you don't want to be that. We need the grace of Christ, don't we? To be different. So we've been warned here that our words will be judged We're accountable, even as believers. Secondly, that they have great influence, our words. And thirdly, that they can be very damaging. Fourth, fourth, be warned that your words reveal your spiritual health. Be warned that your words reveal your spiritual health. James has talked to us a lot about that, right? He's pastored us, James, to be real. To be real from the heart, to be truly spiritually healthy. Over and over again, James has done this. And now, what does he do? He exhorts us by warning of the inconsistency of thinking that you're spiritual when in fact you are not, as indicated by your corrupt speech which comes forth from your mouth. Look at this. Look at verse 9. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father And with it, with our tongues, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is saying, brethren, think with me for a moment. Consider our hypocrisy. And he includes himself as part of this, doesn't he? One minute we're proclaiming the glories of Calvary during our our praise time, and the next minute we're already thinking negative thoughts about other people. Eventually we'll speak those things out or lash out at others who are image bearers, who are God's creatures. Just like you and I are. James says this is hypocritical. This is inconsistent. This is a contradiction. Look at verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers. Oh, he's so pastoral, isn't he? My brothers. He reminds them that he loves them and that he cares about them. By address, even though he's addressing them forthrightly in this way. My brothers, these things, this type of hypocrisy ought not to be so. It's not right, he says. It's not consistent with a life of Christian integrity, of wholeness. It's characteristic of the dipsukos man, of the two-souled man, of the divided man who professes something with his lips, but on the inside he's a completely different person. He says, no, 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 no. These things ought not to be this way. Don't be the dipsukos man. Be the whole man. W-H-O-L-E. Be the man who is full of integrity. From the heart, you speak things that are truthful and in love. And he illustrates, verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? We know the answer, don't we? Of course not. Otherwise, it reveals that the, that the source of that water is, is polluted, that it is filthy. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? That would be completely unnatural. That would be completely abnormal. That's his point. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, he's kind of repetitive, isn't he? Intentionally so. 
Intentionally so. He's hyperbolic, isn't he? Intentionally so. Why? Why is he doing this and using this type of language? Because of the seriousness of the issue at hand. Correct? Because of the gravity of the situation. Because of the type of damage that sinful words can cause. James is being both re repetitive and hyperbolic. So to say, don't fool yourself. If this is you, you have a mouth problem, you are not as mature as you think you are. No matter how much you know, no matter how long you've been at Compass, no matter how many years you've been walking with the Lord, you have a math problem, you're not very spiritually mature in that area. You have a wrong conception of really how mature you are. Because our words reveal or expose our spiritual health. They are a litmus test that we have a heart problem if we're speaking sinfully this way. Brothers, I was so personally convicted about this as I reflected on my last 30 years of walking with the Lord and my weaknesses and failings over the year, over the years. Things that I've confessed to the Lord, obviously. But I would hope that you would be equally convicted as well. And again, for some of us, it's not in our volume or tone that we may do this, right? We're more subtle with it. Maybe it's more in our hearts, but eventually it's subtly expressed. We're very passive-aggressive, right? Passive-aggressive words towards our, our members of our family or other brothers and sisters in Christ or even people out in the world. We're very passive-aggressive in our words, all with a smile but with a knife in our mouth. We're very cutting with our words. We have to be very careful. True spiritual maturity will show itself in gentle Gracious speech. Speech that is full of grace and truth. Amen? Full of grace and truth. Like Christ. Like Christ. As I studied, I couldn't help but to keep thinking about Him. About the Lord Jesus. It always goes back to Him, doesn't it? Whether salvifically or sanctificationally, if that's even a word. I just created one, I guess. It's always back to the greatest example of one who was the champion the champion of gracious, gentle, truthful speech, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else who has ever walked the face of this planet has been more truthful than the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he was the most loving man that ever walked on the face of this planet. Eh, I guess that they kind of go together, right? The tension exists in our sinful hearts and lives. But if we're going to be Christ-like, we're going to be about the truth and love and grace, brothers. Grace will inform and shape the way, the when, and the why we speak to other people, whether it's out in our society, in the context of our home, to other brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle Peter commenting on Jesus' language in the midst of injustice says in 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, Jesus, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. In other words, even in the face of true injustice, none of us, by the way, none, no, none of you, including me, in this room, has ever really truly experienced, in the purest sense, injustice. Christ did. Christ truly did. Being just himself. Our Lord had no deceit in the midst of that, no retaliation, uttered no threats. Instead, the text says in 1 Peter that he entrusted himself to one who judges righteously. Who is that? His heavenly Father. 
He entrusted himself to God and left room for the wrath of God, right? For God to vindicate, even though he and is, was, is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we do the same, brothers, entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your wonderful truth. We thank you for, Lord, passages like these that really force us to put our hearts on the table before you, force us to think deeply about the real challenging, respectable sins of our lives, the things that we tend to condone, things that we tend to diminish, the things that we tend to downplay, Lord. We justify even our sinful words as, as righteous anger or zealous anger. Lord, truth is, more often than not, we are guilty of sinful anger. And then we express that with our mouths, whether toward our wives, our kids, young or older, our grandkids, our kids who are older now out of the home, whether to other brothers and sisters in Christ, and even, Lord, shaming your name by doing this to non-believers instead of being a testimony of salt and light to them. Father, help us. Lord, we need your grace because we can't do this on our own. We need the power of the Spirit of God, the guidance of your Holy Word, and we need one another as men, as Hebrews 10 says, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, even in the area of the use of our mouths, so that, Lord, you would be glorified and we might do what is best for one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.